before we uh, look at God's word, okay? God, we come to you this morning, um, hopefully with anticipation that you're going to speak to us. We just sang a song that says, God, we want to experience your presence more. And the reality, God, is so often in life we get so busy, so filled up, our schedules are so filled up with stuff that we don't spend the time to really stop and hear your voice in our lives. But God, you want to speak to us on a regular basis. You want, to, you want us to have a regular, ongoing conversation with you. You want to speak to us through your word, God. And the only way you can do that is if we get into your word on a regular basis, read it, and then ask ourselves this question, God, what do you, you want us to, to know and to do because of, of, of uh, being in your word? Today, God, as we, as we look at your word once again and what you have to say to us through your, the apostle Paul, as he spoke to one of his uh, uh, people that he mentored, a young man named T- Titus, we pray that, God, that you would speak to us as well, because this is not just something that meant something a long time ago, even though it meant something very important to Titus and to the church at Crete. But also, God, it's something that speaks to us today. So may we not only hear the words, but may we apply them to our lives in such a way that it changes who we are, because, God, it's clear in your word that those of us who claim the name of Christ should be different. The standards of the world should not be that which guide us, but it's the standards, God, that you place in your word that guides us every day. So help us to seek that in our lives, God. Help us to seek you with all of our hearts, our souls, our mind, our strength. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We've been, for the last three weeks, just just three weeks, this is the third week of a series on the little book, of a little letter called uh, Letter of Titus. It was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Titus for a very specific reason. Uh, we, it's part of something we call the pastoral epistles. It's not said, called that in the scripture, but somebody later on started calling First and Second Timothy and Titus that. Because actually what it was, it was, Titus's, or it was Paul's words to two men, to Timothy and to Titus, about how they could make sure that the churches that he had helped plant in two places, Ephesus and Crete, could, could stay on track. Uh, could stay focused on the main thing. And, and, and I kind of relate to Paul in, in, a, in a real way, not that I'm anywhere near what Paul was, but the reality is, is that, you know, other day I was, <laughs> I, I have an encounter with a friend of mine, and, and we were working out, and, and, and this is actually a couple of weeks ago, and, and we worked out again this week, and he about killed me. But other than that, you know, I love him a lot, so he, you know, he knows that, and he can say anything, he can speak into my life and say anything he wants to, because I know he wants the right thing for me. And so when we were talking, we were walking around the track at Metamora, actually running around the track at Metamora, and it was about our seventh lap. And as we were doing, this is our warm-up before we play tennis. And uh, as we were doing that, you're thinking, man, this old guy can do that. Yeah, you can, I can, okay? Okay, and you can do it too, okay. But the deal is, is we were walking around and we were talking, and he was asking me, he said, Bill, so tell me about what's going on in your life. Tell me what about this burnout thing, what's going on? And, and, and this whole thing of, of going through the struggles you're having in life and this transition time. And, and as we were walking around, he said, you know, the thing, and I don't know how, how this came about, but as we were talking, he, he was just trying to give me advice and give me direction. He said, you know, the thing that you have to understand is this. He said, you know, the church, Great Oaks, is like a child to you. You came when it was a baby. And you've helped it to grow up, and you've done a good job. And he was, you know, and he was, that was before he kicked me in the behind. He said that. 
And then he said, he said, right now the reason you're struggling is because you get to the place in life where, like with kids, you got to get to a place where they grow up and they become teenagers and then you let them out, you let them out and you, you let them go and you let them, let them grow up. They've come to a certain place and you can't be there to do everything for them all the time. And you're struggling with that right now of letting go. And I'm going like, man, how come you're so smart? Because they know exactly what you mean. He said, you know, and then he said this to me. He looked at me and he said this. And he said this in love. He said, you know, your plan right now is in about three and a half years, plus or minus a little bit, probably plus. Your plan is to transition to somewhere else and to do ministry somewhere else. Okay? He said, so, you know, 10 years from now, nobody will even remember your name. <laughs> and I'm going, I don't want to hear that. But the reality is probably true. Probably remember my name. Who was that guy that used to be Pastor Great Oaks? Bill dude, you know, I don't, whatever, you know. Kind of the goofy guy from, the, from Virginia, you know, it spoke weird. I hope the next guy has a better accent than me, okay? Maybe he's going to be from Kentucky or somewhere, you know. And, <laughs> or Louisiana, have Cajun accent or something. Who knows, whatever the God's got in store for but he just simply said that because the thing is, is in our life, we come to a place in life that we kind of hold on to things, but we not need to pass it on. So Paul was at that point. He had, he had helped grow the babies up, churches in Ephesus, churches in Crete, and now he was passing the baton to some new guys. And so he wrote these epistles, the first and second Timothy, the letter to Timothy, to tell him about, oh, hey, here's some things that are important that you need to do, that you need to do to make sure that this church stays on track. And then when he wrote to Titus, he wrote this little letter, just three chapters, and he said, this is what you need to do to stay on track so the church will keep going because Paul wanted more than anything to see God glorified through the churches that he'd help plant. He'd help grow up to a certain place. So he gives this information. That's why he wrote these letters. And so that's why they're so important to me because in a sense, the last three weeks is a letter not only from, from Paul to Titus, but it's a letter from Paul to us. It relates to us because this is the three things he said in the last two chapters of the day we're going to look at. The first chapter, Paul talks to Titus and says, Titus, one of the most important things that you can do to make sure the church stays on track is to make sure you have godly, God-fearing leaders in place. And that's what we talked about the first week in Titus chapter 1. He gave some things. He said we need to be blameless, blameless in family. Leaders do. doesn't be perfect, but be people who have strong families. Blameless in character. You need to have people who are in leadership who, who don't have character flaws. I mean, you know, sometimes we just kind of settle for things and we get to make sure that we don't settle for anything. We need to settle for leaders, not just pastors and leaders, but people who are leaders in our church on our leadership team and other people who, who guide our church, blameless in character, and then blameless in doctrine. Make sure that our doctrine, the, the teachings of God's word stay true. Then in chapter 2, last week, Chris shared with us a little, just a little part of chapter 2, but chapter 2 deals with, in the life of the church, not only do we need to have those kind of leaders, but we ourselves need to be in the right relationship with one another. As you look at the first part of chapter 2, that's what it deals with, and then it kind of, Chris kind of went over and talked about chapter, the first couple of verses of chapter 3, and in chapter 3, it talks about the first couple of verses about having right relationships with the world, and leaders in the world. And how we respond to them in a positive way. If you weren't here last week, listen to that. Because he, what he had to say was spot on. In regard to our response to the stuff. Especially in light of our current, current uh, uh, climate in the world. 
But today we come to chapter 3, and I just want to ask you a question. Chapter 3 deals with, kind of wraps things together. And it talks about this whole thing of how we live out the gospel in our lives, how we stay on mission. So let me ask you this question. When you think of God, how do you think about him? How would you describe the idea you have about who God is? Maybe he feels distant to you. Maybe he seems a little harsh or or, or judgmental to you based on your experience with God. Maybe you feel that he has forgiven you, but now all all he wants to do is just kind of tolerate you now. I've heard people say that before. Yeah, God's forgiven me, but man, I don't know how he puts up with me. Would you use the word, when you think of God, the word kind to describe God, the God that you see? If not, we need to look at this today because guess what Paul describes God when he came in the form of Jesus? In verse chap- chapter, let's go to Titus chapter 3. You just want to open that up in your Bibles or your iPhones or your pads or whatever you got on there that you can look at. Keep it open. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8 today, just, just a few verses in the middle, and then we're going to wrap up with a verse that's kind of the summary, verse, verse 14, okay? Chapter 3, verse 4, this is what, what Paul says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He describes God primarily with the term kindness. Kindness. And then the next four verses, I'm giving you a summary before we get into the next four verses, or actually verse 4 through 7, in Titus chapter 3, or actually, if you look at the original language, the Greek language, it's actually one sentence. Just one sentence. Verses 4, four through 7 are actually one long run-on sentence in the Greek. And he concludes that section, which we'll look at in a few minutes, with these words. This is a trustworthy saying, talking about what just went before this. Saying this is the truth. And what he says we're doing, we're meant to read it, reflect on it, trust it, and marvel at what God says through this because it's really a summary of the gospel and the truth that's so important. The gospel means the good news, which is all what the Bible is about. So let's go and look at that this morning, look at what it has to say to us, because this deals with us more personally. First week about leadership, last week about relationships, today about how we stay focused on the main thing. That's what Paul was saying. The first thing he says to us in verse verse 3 is we need to face the truth about ourselves. How would you describe yourself if you're honest, if nobody was watching If you could write it down and describe yourself with a bunch of terms, you probably would not describe yourself as harshly as Paul describes us in verse verse 3. He says this. This is talking about being before we came to Christ. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Basically, he's saying at one time before you come to Christ, our life was a mess. I would describe, those terms there, I think, describe your life being a mess. If you don't get that, that's that's a mess. Verse 3. See, and and, and the Bible says, uh, he says, we were foolish and disobedient. You know what the Bible says also in Psalm 14? It says, 
A fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's what a fool is. See, before we come to God, he says, we say there is no God, or we might not say there is a God, but we just don't care that there is a God. That's what a fool is described in, in Scripture itself. A fool is someone who lives if God does not exist. And a disobedient person is someone who rejects God's rule and wants to run their own life. This rejection of God then affects everything in our lives, and this is what it's describing here. Here, it, it's, it, 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 uh, it, it affects our thinking. It says we were foolish and deceived, and it affects our behavior. We were disobedient and enslaved. And how does this work in our lives? Well, our individual choices, so often we blame everybody else, but this is the reality. Our individual choices have created a collective culture that deceives us. And in a real sense, what happens is our choices have created patterns of behavior in my life and in your life that enslave us. We, we, we are slaves to our patterns of behavior. How many of you said, I wish I could do better in whatever? And you're going like, well, it's in your mind that you wish you could do better. How many of you said, you know what's going to happen on January 1st? A lot of you are going to make commitments to do something. You're going to have New Year's resolutions. And, you're, and, and you know what? Workout centers love you, love all of, all of us. Because people will go and join in droves the month of January. I was talking to this, this friend of mine, and I was working out, and I worked out Friday with him and over at Five Points, and, and as we were doing all the crazy stuff, he says, not busy right now, wait till January. So it'll be hundreds of people show up. And then February, it'll be back to normal. We're enslaved by our habits, and our habits tell us, oh, you don't, you don't need to work out, you don't have to do that, you don't have to eat right, you don't have to study God's Word, you don't have to do any of those things. You know, it's true, you don't have to. But habitually, we know what we need to do. And so we're enslaved to these things that happen. We're trapped by our habits, and these habits are formed through our actions, and we need someone to save us. Because no matter how much we try, we will fail eventually in these areas. And we need more than just a helping hand. We need a complete rescue. That's what this is talking about here. Because our relationship with God is a mess, then also it says our relationships with one another is a mess. It says the last part of that verse, it says in Titus 3.3, it says, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Isn't that a great relational uh, picture right there? <laughs> I'm being obnoxious here, okay? No, it's not a good relational picture, living with malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Malice is wishing bad things would happen to people. Envy is wishing good things that had happened had not happened. That is not a relational picture that any of us want to live in because that's not what we do. But 21st century Western culture is all about self-esteem and, and it's about, about image. It's all about me and how I feel about myself. So if anyone threatens that with an uncompromising uh, dose of truth, then it feels like they're attacking me. But we need people to speak into our life like my friend spoke into my life a couple of weeks ago and I didn't like it. But I accepted it because of the relationship we had. See, this constant tiring attempt to manage our image to portray ourselves in the best of light can all be over if we simply surrender to what God's plan is for our lives. So, the reality is, and this is when I conclude this little part, the reality is that we will never understand the God as a kind God, or we will never understand the wonderful kindness of God and the love of God until we do one thing. We face 
the reality of who we really are deep inside. That we really do resemble what Paul says in verse 3. So, that's the bad news. The good news. Okay, let's, let's talk about good news. Yeah, we're messed up, but there's some good news. So what we want to do and focus on is verses 4 through 7 now. And verses 4 through 7 are incredibly good news. So we need to enjoy the truth about God's kindness. Verses, uh, Titus 3, verses 4 and 5 says this. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, it says, He saved us. And then it says this, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. And the, and the term, the, the, the little phrase, the main verb of the sentence is that which, I, uh, which is up there is he saved us. He saved us. It's, it's the main verb of that sentence, which runs from verse 4 to 7. Uh, we were facing, he's basically saying, condemnation, judgment, and death. And there was nothing that we can do. We were deceived and enslaved. We were powerless and helpless. But he decided to save that, us. Let me ask you a question. How do you make decisions in life? Do you ever ever draw up a, a list when you're making a decision? It's a big decision. Pros and cons. You ever have a list? Of, anybody ever done that before? Write a list of pros and cons? Yeah. If you don't write it down, sometimes you still do it in your head. Right? Think about this. If this is how God judged us. Pros. Uh, well, let's look at the cons first, okay? What's on the con side? Why should he save us? And this is what we are. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hating, and hated. That's not a really great list, okay? That's the cons list. What are on the pro side? What's the list of reasons God should save us? So probably we can think of something, but it's not enough. It's basically nothing. Thank goodness that's not how God judges things. Because if we judge us that way, then we have no, no, um, no, no hope. But when God would write on the side of the, con, of, the, of the pro side, he doesn't write anything about us because of his kindness. What does he write? He says, the reason I should save them is because of my kindness, my love, my mercy, not theirs. That's what he's talking about here. That's the good news. See, God, God did not look at us, and this, I thought about this the other day. God doesn't, doesn't look at us every day and go like, you know, well, on balance, I think they're not too bad. You know, we, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't look at us and think, I can see some potential there. What he sees is reality. He knows our hearts, not our image. He knows that deep down on our own, what we will turn to, we'll default to the things that he talked about, foolishness, disobedience, malice, envy, hatred. He saw a thousand reasons to condemn us. But in, but in verse uh, 3, 5, he says, and he saved us, but it was not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us because. The word because is the key here. Here is the reason for our acceptance by God. He accepts me, he accepts me because he loves us. He's kind. That's the kind of God that we have. You know, over the years, I've asked people the question, and they've come to my office and talked to me, or I've met them somewhere, and we've talked about this whole thing of what it means to follow Christ. And sometimes I've asked them the question, you know, fill in the blank. He accepts, God accepts me because. And people have said things like, well, because uh, 
something I've done. They'll name something they've done, they, some good thing. God should accept me because of that. Or the other thing that sometimes people say is because God should accept everybody. He's just a loving God. But he's also a righteous God as well. Because it says here, he doesn't accept us because of the righteous things we have done. See, what he's talking about here is the saving faith. The faith that we have to trust in God removes faith in ourselves. It involves stripping away confidence in anything except God. He saved us because of his mercy, period. And that's our true and only hope. And if you think you can be accepted because you're inherently acceptable or, or because God should accept everyone regardless, then you're not saved. Because you have to come to a place of trusting in what God has done for you, for you to allow yourself to be saved. When we think that we're good and we can do things on our own, the problem is, is it blocks our, the, the kindness of God from working in our lives, the mercy of God working in our lives. We need to reread verse 3 and feel the weight of the truth about who we are and what we are like and see that God's kindness does not mean injustice because he will punish sin. And our salvation begins with the mercy of God the Father. And there was a point in time, it says in Titus 4, uh, the last part of uh, 4 and verse 5, when the kindness and love of God appeared and he saved us. Now, the thing that's, that's powerful to me in these verses is this. Jesus and we got Christmas coming, right? Y'all know Christmas coming, right? I mean, if the commercials are already out there, you know, you turn on TV. I was going like, it keeps getting earlier and earlier. Sometime this, next year is going to be on July 4th, they're going to start advertising Christmas, I think. Don't you? Well, anyway, if you don't know, Christmas is coming. But the reality is next week, we're actually next, next Sunday, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're going to start our Christmas series. Four weeks Actually, five weeks, five Sundays. We're going to talk about a series called Because He Came. And this kind of ties in with it today as well, because Jesus, as we think about who God is, Jesus is the kindness and love of God made visible. And humanity had heard about the love of God over the centuries. They knew about it, they read about it, uh, as it were, in the promises of God and through the prophets. But at the very first Christmas, God's kindness became more than just a rumor. More than just a promise, it became physical. People could see it and touch it. God had all, they knew that in their minds, God had always loved us. But then in the incarnation, that's a big word for the God coming to earth as Jesus. And most of all, in the crucifixion, his love reached a climax as he gave what was most precious to him. God did what was most precious to him, his own son, to live as a human and die as a criminal. So when we choose to ignore and disobey God, we become God's enemy. We don't think of it that way. We think, oh, I just don't, you know, care a lot, so I'm not really enemy. But God says there's only one of two positions in regard to him. You're either his friend or his enemy. Nowhere in between. We become rebels under his judgment if we, if we rebel against God. And so our future, was, our future is set. It's condemnation and death. Eternal separation from God. And before that could be reconciliation, God had to deal with that disobedience and the penalty of our rebellion had to be paid and the sentence of death had to be passed. So his kindness and love, the God the Father sent his son to die. In his kindness and love, God sent the son to die for me and for you. Man, that's how kind God is. That's how loving God is. 
that he would do something that drastic to pay for something that we cannot pay for ourselves. So, verses 5 through 7, then we're just going to read those real quick, and I'm going to comment on them. Uh, 5 through 7 is what we call, it's a summary of what I call the gospel, the good news, the central core of what everything we're about. If you don't read anything else the next 12 years, read these. Because this is what he says. He says this, when he came in his kindness, when he came, verse 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. What does that say? The word justified there in verse 7 is a, is a legal term. It means that to be declared right. It's like a trial is taking place and the charge is that we are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hated, and hating. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the, the charge. And, and there is more than enough evidence against us, and the verdict must be, surely must be what? Guilty. If this was a trial. But then the kindness of God intervenes. It appears in the form of his son. The sentence we deserve is passed on to him. He dies in our place and bears our penalty. And as a result, the verdict against us is no longer one of condemnation, but innocence. That's what it means to be justified. He says, so that because of what God has done, we are justified. Secondly, it says in that verse, in verse 7, it says, we receive life. It says, we might become heirs, we are justified by grace so that we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We were justified so we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Eternal life is the consequence, not of something that we do. It's the consequence of something that God did for us in his kindness. Eternal life is the consequence of the work the Spirit does, described in verse 5. The Spirit, this is how it works, according to Scripture. The Spirit opens our eyes to recognize Jesus as our Savior so that we put our faith in him. The Spirit does that. The Spirit works in our life. Let me explain something to you. When you pray for someone, you know what you're praying about, that they come to Christ? You're praying that the Spirit would convict them, work in their life, change their, their, their idea, their image. The Spirit of God, the Bible says it over and over again, one of the works of God's Spirit is that He will change us and make us aware of our sin. The Spirit does that. He works in the unbeliever to, to, to help them that. And then when we become a believer, He works in us to help us to live the kind of life God wants us to live. And it's this spirit-given faith in the finished work of Jesus that we're justified. But that is not all. Paul presents here justification, this being justified with God, as the precondition of having hope. It is only having been justified by his grace that we can become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Because when we look at verse 7, what do you see? You see that Jesus got what we deserve. You see that? Jesus got what we deserve. He endured the condemnation and the death that we deserve because of our rebellion. 
And in return, we get what Jesus deserves. We get his reward. That's what's going on when someone becomes a Christian. You're going like, I thought it was a little simpler than that. Well, I just described a theological foundation of what it means to be a Christian. The Holy Spirit convicts us. Our eyes are open. We understand what Jesus did for us and the kindness of God. We respond to the kindness of God. And what happens is, is we, we, we put our faith in that. That's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. It might be that someone says, well, I've read the Bible, I've decided the truth, so I'm going to believe in Jesus. Or someone might say, I've seen the lives of Christians and I've heard the messages, so I've decided to follow Jesus for myself. Or someone might say, I love God because of all that he has done for me, so I've decided to be baptized. I've heard you say that. I've heard me say those things before. And those things are all true. And they're all great descriptions from a personal human perspective. But in every case, there is something going on beforehand and underneath that makes it happen. And that is the Spirit's work in our lives. See, if you've decided that the Bible is true, it's because the Spirit has been working in your life to help open your eyes to that fact. If you decided to follow Jesus, it is because the Spirit has opened your heart to love Jesus. So you see what God is doing? He does everything. He provides us not only with the way, but the motivation to the way. He provides us with the power source to get us where we need to go. That's the kindness of God that we're talking about here. See, God doesn't say, he doesn't say, well, I've done all this for you. Now the rest is up to you. No, he provides every single thing that you and I need to have a relationship with the Father. Every single thing. So we can go around beating ourselves, well, I'm a Christian, I did this, you know, and I got some notches on my belt. No, no, no. We got to realize who we are in Christ and how we can, we're we're only one step away from from falling back into patterns that we used to have. Doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but the things that, but we can become people who just simply let the world and the culture just enslave us once again to the patterns of the world. And to whom does God do this? Who, who did God do this for? The, this, this everything. And scripture says those who were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved and living in malice and envy and hating and hated. He said it has nothing to do with how righteous you are. He, he offers it to everyone. So the summary of this is this in verses 3 through 7. They're a beautiful, they're a be- it's a beautiful summary of the kindness of God to people who do not deserve it. That's the summary of this, this passage. Like, it's the summary of the kindness of God to people who do not deserve it. Us. And God's kindness is seen in the sending of his son and the sending of his spirit so that we might share the, in the rebirth of all things. So the question is, that Paul concludes this passage with, is this, to us and to the people back then and every Christian that's ever lived, What are we to do with this wonderful gospel summary and message? What are we to do with it? Verse 8. He says, first of all, this is a trustworthy saying. What is he talking about? He's talking about what he just said. Verses 4 through 7. The gospel summary. This is a trustworthy message. This is the truth. This is God's truth. And then he says what to do with it. And I want you to stress these things. 
so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And I'm not going to read verse 9, but verse 9 talks about what is unprofitable and, 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 and not excellent at all. So what is profitable and excellent he talks about here? This and these things refer to what Paul has just been talking about in verse 4 through 7. The kindness of God, the appearing of Jesus, the rebirth of the Spirit, justification by grace, the hope of eternal life, all those things. It's the gospel which is excellent and profitable for everyone. The Father's mercy on us, the Son's work for us, and the Spirit's presence in us. That's the things that he says we need to stress in our life. And what does it mean to stress it in our life? Let me just put it in, in real terms. <laughs> what do you talk about in your small group meetings? If we do not stress what, let me tell you what a small group meeting should look like, according to me, okay? And I believe according to scripture. It should be where we spend a little time in God's word. We read God's word, but you don't have to be a whole lot of verses, just a few verses, and ask yourself this question, what does that mean for me to do? And then we talk about that. And, and a large portion of the time in our small group should be in sharing the gospel message. God has done this in my life this week. And sharing how God has been working in our lives so that we can celebrate what God has done. Sometimes God's, there's things in our lives during the week that are, that are scary. Sometimes they're great. But the thing is, is we can talk about those things and celebrate what God's doing in our life to help us through the tough times and to celebrate the good, the, the good times. And then we should lift each other up in prayer not having a prayer, not our prayers are not about Aunt Bessie's, you know, hernia or something like that. I mean, it's all right sometimes to pray about those things. But in our groups, we need to pray for one another. After we've talked about how the gospel has been lived out in our lives that week. And how God's word has applied, has been applied in our lives that week. And what it says to us, what it's speaking to us. That's what it means to stress these things. Another way it means to stress these things is this. <laughs> when you sit down to eat or hang out together or meet up during the week, what do you talk about? What do you talk about? Guys, what do you talk about? Sports. You know, or recently politics. <laughs> Let me explain something to you. I think you know this already. I think you know this already. I don't care who's president. They're not in control. God's in control. And as long as we stick with God and follow his plan in our lives, no matter how messed up the world is going to be, America, the rest of the world is going to be, I know who wins. Because I've read the final chapters of the book. And we need to stress the gospel because the thing that's most important in our lives, what he's saying is that the, the, the gospel, the good news that God can change our lives, can change our neighbor's lives, can change our family members' lives. All these things should be the things that we talk about more than anything else. Paul kind of concludes this this. Um, this, this, this little letter to Titus by saying it this in Titus 3.14. 
He said, after he's talked about leadership, he's talked about relationships, he's talked about how the gospel's lived out in our life, he says this, our people, talking about the church, must learn to devote themselves to doing, good, doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not to live unproductive lives. I mean, that, you cannot be more practical than Paul is right there. He said, we need to, we need to uh, devote themselves to doing what is good. What is that? The gospel. Let me tell you something, folks. I love sports. I love, I love activities. I love doing stuff. But I don't care if you play in the NFL, the NBA, or anywhere else. That doesn't get you to heaven. Doesn't do it. And we need to be promoting that which is ultimately the main thing. And Satan's greatest tool in our world today is to get us distracted by things that are good, but not the best. So how are we going to focus our lives? How are you going to focus the lives of your kids? How are you going to focus the lives of what you do with their time that we have? Folks, <laughs> how many of you here, no, I, don't, I won't do that. I was going to ask me how many here are over 60 years old, and you're going to like, I've come to know something. When you get older, you start realizing you don't have as much time left. You really do. And you're going like, it's urgent. Got to do it now. There may not be a tomorrow. But you know something? Over the last 30, 37 years of ministry, I've buried people of every age. From infants to 101-year-olds. That was the oldest one. Nobody knows how long they have. I'm not trying to be morbid here, folks. I'm trying to be realistic. Paul is saying, hey, it's urgent, folks, that we do what is most important with our lives. Don't become distracted. Stay focused on what is good. Provide for urgent needs of those that we can help. And don't live unproductive lives. And I would think Paul would say unproductive lives are those which are distracted lives. So, we're going to close in a minute and sing a song and go home. And I hope this week that you'll read these verses over and over and over and over and ask this question what would God have me to do with the gospel verses 4 through 7 it is great news it can give people hope it can change their lives around but God has done it all and we need to be people who convey that to others it is the most productive thing you can do this week it's the most productive thing you can do each day Helping people to see God and being used as a conduit to God. I don't want to waste the rest of my life. I don't think I've wasted it all, but sometimes I've wasted it. I have to be honest. I want to be productive. I want to be helpful and help people to continue. No matter what I transition to down the road, that's the struggle right now. What God wants me to do next. We always need to know that. But what I need to do right now is this. And that's why this book of Titus, this little letter of Titus, spoke to me so vividly. I hope it speaks to you as well. Because it's the very essence of the gospel. It tells us exactly what we need to be doing. To be the church and be people that God will bless. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. We pray that you would allow us this morning to not only hear your words, but to apply your words to our lives. 
Now, the reality is that so often we allow ourselves to be, be, get into habits that are, that are not bad. Some of us have bad habits, yes. But habits that are not the best. Spending our time doing things that are not really focused on the best. So God, help us to understand how to balance life in such a way that, we, that, our, that the main thing that we do is stress the gospel in our lives. Live such a way that people will see you in our lives, God. And speak the words to people as well. The words of truth. The words that really ultimately are the only things that matter. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. A kindness that does everything that we need. To have a relationship with you, God, even we, though we deserve rejection. And God, you've done it all. You've convicted us by your spirit. You've given us the way through your son, Jesus Christ, all those things. All we have to do is come to a point of realizing what you've done for us, God, and then say yes to you. And by saying yes in faith, you begin a process in our life, God, of change that makes a difference, not just in what we think, but in what we do every day. Christians are to be different people. People who follow your plan, God, and not the culture. Guide us this, mor this morning, God, and guide us every day this week to speak the truth and love to others about you and about who you are to gather in our small groups and celebrate what you're doing through the gospel in our lives. To look at your word, God, not as, a, as simply information, but look, just read a few verses and then ask, what is it you want me to do, God? What does it mean as far as transforming me into your image? Help us, God, right now to trust in you more and to love you more. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.